Welcome to Mind Love, episode 317. Today's episode is all about igniting creative sparks through curiosity, emotions, and storytelling for makers, marketers, and mystics. A curiosity is something that you notice that kind of sticks out, that is like a, a little bit of a different vibration, something that reveals something. And as a mystic, that's something that's really important for dream practice, for example. When you're lucid dreaming, you got to look for these things that are kind of sort of sticking out in your inner world and then go into them and they're portals to other places. It's an incredible part of that practice. For marketers, it's like trend forecasting. You scroll through the feeds or you're going out to public parks and basketball courts and looking for new arising memes or trends in fashion. There's always just a little bit of a glow to them. It's, it's something curious, something that, that captures your attention. And then you, you pull on it a little bit and it takes you somewhere. Turn up your frequency with Mind Love. Bite-sized brain hacks for seekers, dreamers, and doers. It's time to give your mind a little love with your host, Melissa Monti. If this is your first time giving your mind a little love, don't forget to hit the subscribe button. Mind love is a habit, and the more you give your mind that love and intention, the better you'll feel about yourself and your life. Plus, it's really a win-win because more subscribers means Mind Love attracts even more amazing guests to bring you their wisdom. So don't forget to subscribe. When's the last time you felt truly creative? I mean the kind of creative where you lose track of time or your hands are busy crafting something out of nothing and your mind is full of ideas and possibilities. Do you even remember that feeling? Or have you convinced yourself that you're just not the creative type? Maybe somewhere between paying bills and adulting, your imagination decided to find someone else to inhabit. As I got older, I started to feel like I was outgrowing creativity. And the harder I tried to get it back, the further it seemed to be. I'd sit down to brainstorm and it felt like I was trying to squeeze water from a stone. I thought, if I don't have this grand elaborate vision right off the bat, then maybe I'm just not meant to be creative. Then I read a book called Steal Like an Artist, and it was like someone handed me a permission slip. The book argued that nothing is truly original and that all creative work builds on what came before. So I started copying. And not in the plagiaristic way, but in a let's see how they did it so I can do kind of way. And something magical happened. With enough repetition, it's like my brain started to groove new pathways. I was deepening the neural circuits of creativity. And before I knew it, original ideas were popping up everywhere. What I found is that so many of us believe that creativity is reserved for artists, musicians, or people in creative jobs. But that's actually a limiting belief. Creativity isn't just about making art. It's about solving problems, thinking outside the box, and just making life more interesting. It's a skill that can make you better at your job, deepen your relationships, and even improve your mental health. So if you're sitting there thinking that you're not creative, you're missing out. You're missing out on the joy of making something new, the thrill of solving a problem that no one else could solve, and just the sheer satisfaction of turning a vision into reality. So what if I told you that reigniting your creativity isn't as hard as you think? What if the key to unlocking your creative potential lies in the emotions you feel, the stories you tell, and the curiosity that drives you? Intrigued? Well, we are about to explore some unexpected ways to get those creative juices flowing again. Our guest is Will Cady. He's Reddit's global brand ambassador and founding head of Reddit's Karma Lab creative strategy team. In his role as strategist, he's leveraged his uniquely blended approach of creativity and mysticism to advise powerhouse brands in tech like Apple, Google, Samsung, T-Mobile, AT&T, and Adobe. And in 2020, he was named Adweek's Top 50 for tech, media, and marketing. So three key things we will learn are how curiosity can reveal things from mystical practices to trending forecasts. The tension between what is true versus what is useful and why it matters. And the role of storytelling in releasing trapped energy. 
Before we totally expand our minds, I want to invite you to wake up to the morning mind love. Every weekday morning, you just get a little inspiration to set your tone for the day and give you something positive to focus on. Think of it like a short note from your higher self. Plus, when you sign up, you get two free gifts, a super powerful 30-minute affirmation meditation and 30 days of journaling prompts to help you remember who you truly are. And it's all completely free. So join over 9,000 people and go to mindlove.com to sign up. Or if you're out and about, just text the word MORNING to 33777. That's MORNING to 33777. And now let's welcome Will Cady to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here. So I've been loving your book because I too consider myself a maker, marketer, and mystic. And it's interesting because sometimes... It's like my logical, creative, and spiritual brains are all sort of arguing with each other. So it was almost a breath of fresh air to to start to read someone who has been so successful in blending all of these areas of their mind, their life, their being. So I'm curious, how did your journey lead you to create the seven directions, which we'll get into details of what those are uh, a little bit later, but I'm curious what led you to the entire idea of this book? The book itself really kind of served as this North Star that brought everything together. And I totally feel what you're saying there and the arguing in your head between these disparate sides, like the maker, the marketer, and the mystic. I think I mentioned it in the book as well. I mean, these were embarrassments to each other inside of my identity. I mean, they don't necessarily jive, but as I set out towards the goal of putting a book out into the world, bringing those three together, braiding those three together ended up becoming really the calling. It was the creative vision that started to manifest itself. And in that process was the development of the seven directions system, which serves as the meditation system that I've been teaching. But it's also very much been the way that my brain works when coming up with ideas as a maker and as a marketer. So as I progressed further in the process of words on the page, these disparate identities, they started to really feed off of each other. And life started to really accept these three identities in each of their different places. So it was a surprising journey how they all came together. And it was because of the want, the drive to create this book. When I was first diving into your book, there were a couple things that I've heard before but you explained them in slightly different ways. And then there was, and one one example of that is that anxiety, you said anxiety is creativity. I've heard that anxiety is excitement. And so thinking of it through the lens of creativity was really fascinating to me. But another thing that you said was that all creation is struggle. And I love that. So tell us more about how you came to that. Yeah, I mean, that I think was really born out of the times that we live in right now. I mean, these are incredibly anxious times. And I'm also an advisor for this group called Project Healthy Minds that the goal has been to destigmatize mental health and popular culture. And in 2020, I mean, that really just thrust to the forefront of the conversation in so many different ways. So anxiety is really presenting itself as the work right now in this time. My feelings about it across all of these identities is that by saying that anxiety is creativity ready to be transmuted, it allows us to relax into the notion that it's not that there's something wrong with us, but that there's something for us to do. That this anxiety is stagnant energy that wants to be put into motion. And energy in motion is emotion. It's this catharsis that we crave. It's we want to move ourselves and move each other through creativity and through story. There's a lot of different traditions and mysticism that, you know, align with that viewpoint. And so this is really a modern presentation of some old ideas at a very timely discussion to figure out what are we going to do about all this anxiety that's around us and within each of us. So I have two little ones, a six month old and a two and a half year old. And it's interesting because I 
have been dealing with more guilt than I'm used to. <laughs> I I haven't really ever been like a guilty person, but all of a sudden I have been realizing I've been working a lot and I had like this overwhelming feeling of guilt the other day. And it's this feeling that has been sort of bubbling up, but I keep sort of sweeping it under the rug. And the other day I just let myself feel it. And then all of a sudden I realized, okay, by January, there's a couple of changes I need to make in my business so that I can spend more time with them. I do spend time with them, but I want more. Like I want to be the one raising them. We do have a nanny, things like that. And it was interesting because so somehow relaxing into that guilt and asking it like, well, what's in this for me? And then getting clarity. I then had an overwhelming amount of gratitude for my emotions as guidance, which is a, a really big key topic in your book. And so when I was reading about how anxiety is creativity waiting to be transmuted, I immediately could visualize how to use that. Whereas there's a lot of times, especially when I'm writing, that I get maybe what I internalize as writing block or, well, I have all this other stuff to do. I don't have time to sit in front of the screen and not make progress or whatever it is. And what I started to realize is, you know how you talk about how we're kind of meaning making machines. We're always giving meaning to these emotions, but we don't often challenge if that's the right meaning or if you know, instead of immediately ascribing meaning to something, what if we relaxed into it and, and we're more curious about it? Because so often we think we just automatically know what it's about when a lot of times there's more layers underneath. And so I could see myself having one of those moments and instead just saying like, okay, this isn't, doesn't immediately mean that, oh, I have all this other stuff to do or what I'm used to attaching to it. What if instead I just allowed it to be? And so I practiced that this morning when I was writing and it was so amazing the way it just transmuted. There's really not a better word for that. It was like, because I wasn't as quick to attach what I already thought it was, I was able to just be like, okay, well, this is a feeling. It's not necessarily a bad feeling. It's not, it doesn't need contraction where I kind of go within myself and whatever I'm used to doing, what if I looked at it as creativity or as excitement? And then all of a sudden the words just started to flow. So I'm not sure if that's how you use those things, but I've already found it helpful. Well, that's beautiful because I mean, you, you did exactly what the book is proposing to do. And it's to notice the texture of the feeling, guilt in this case. And you know, you've got a great vocabulary for your inner experience already. If you have this, you know, kind of familiarity to be able to name it, to better understand it. But just the simple act of asking, what are you here to tell me to the feeling as an invitation to play with it for creativity? I mean, that's, that's really it. And, and that's the message at the front of the book. But this book is also, it, it comes from a lot of my experience in the tech world and in the business world where I encounter a lot of people who, like myself, are very stuck in our heads. And so it created a bit of an intricate system of those seven directions to help those that aren't able to do the process that you did of meeting the emotion where it's at and then working with it, but those that need to break it down a little bit further. And, and I'm curious how, how you, you know, maybe if we play that here a little bit just for a moment, but in these directions, like the, the energy of this feeling, the, the seven directions offers to say, okay, well, this is in your heart. This is in your body. This is, this is in your mind. Where is it coming from? Is it in front of you? Is it behind you? Is it something you're receiving? Is it something you're giving out in the world? Is it, is it something that you rest upon? Is it where you are? Is it something that shines upon you? Is it in this moment? And, and I'm curious for you in that exercise as you, you know, transmuted this guilt into creativity, is there any particular direction that feels like it was really coming from more than the others. I have always been someone who's prioritized wellness. 
well, at least what I understood about it at the time, which has definitely evolved. But now I live in a town where some of my conveniences just aren't as accessible as when I lived in LA. Then I found Aloe Moves and my whole experience changed. I've been an avid yogi for 16 years, but frankly, I am just underwhelmed by most online yoga. Their flows are either too easy or not varied enough. Well, Aloe Moves has everything. Of course, they have an endless selection of beginner content, since that is the category most people fall into, but they even have advanced and yoga teacher-focused content. They are the only online platform that I can find that I can narrow down the time that I'm looking for precisely. Like, I have 38 minutes today. What you got? <laughs> they have something for every mood. Trying to get a good sweat? Try their award-winning workouts like sweat-inducing yoga flows, hit classes, or reformer Pilates workouts with or without weights. Or find stress relief with meditations, affirmations, face yoga, gua sha, dry brushing, and even journaling for those quiet moments. And when it comes to sleep, it's just as important as fitness and nutrition. Ever since I watched The Art of Sleep on Aloe Moves, I've been falling asleep faster and staying asleep longer. So unlock your personal wellness routine with Aloe Moves. Go to alomoves.com now and use code MINDLOVE for an exclusive 30-day free trial and enjoy 20% off an annual membership. That's alomoves.com code MINDLOVE. alomoves.com code MINDLOVE. If there's one topic that keeps coming up in my women's circles, it's our hormones. Frankly, I think that between years of birth control or beauty products that mess with endocrine function, a lot of us are just out of whack. EstroControl is a formula developed by Happy Mammoth, a supplement company dedicated to making women's lives easier. It has science-backed herbal extracts that help support hormonal health, especially in women who suffer from PMS. The way EstroControl eases PMS is pretty interesting. The ingredients support the liver, and that's where our hormones get processed, especially estrogen. So when the estrogen isn't processed well in the liver, women may start having PMS, spots on the skin, they get cravings, they feel low all of a sudden. EstroControl was created to help women feel like themselves all throughout the month because PMS can basically rob us of a week of our lives every month. Totally not fair. EstroControl is made specifically for women who are premenopausal, so it's perfect for women that haven't entered menopause yet. And in fact, it's amazing for perimenopause when hormones start to fluctuate and PMS can turn into a beast. I have been relearning myself postpartum. I just started my period again when my baby was 10 months and I forgot how wild these hormone changes can be. I wanted something to just maintain optimal hormone levels and help with mild mood swings, and EstroControl is perfect for this. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com with promo code MINDLOVE at checkout. That's happymammoth.com and use promo code MINDLOVE for 15% off your first order. Is there any particular direction that feels like it was really coming from more than the others it felt like it was uh, future telling it depends on which moment we're talking about when i was writing this morning it was almost like just releasing the meaning cr created a new direction for me to go whereas i'm used to being like ah like i'll i'll kind of get caught up oh it's this feeling again and then i already have an idea of what this feeling means like it's a blockage and so then i feel stuck versus I decided to just let go of that meaning. And all of a sudden I started writing. It was like, it, because I didn't bring in the meaning automatically, I was able to just feel it in a different way. I've done that before. This is gonna sound ridiculous, but I've done that before uh, when I started getting anxiety right after having a baby, which it's something I just didn't really experience in the same way until I gave birth for some reason. Apparently that's common. Well. I remember saying to myself, you know, in my early 20s, I used to take drugs to specifically feel this and I thought it was a good thing. Why is it so bad right now? <laughs> and something about that was able to uh, sort of just shift it so I wasn't creating the outcome. But if we're talking about the moment the other day where I immediately had this guilt uh, because I just sort of picked up a new role in my husband's business as well because both of our businesses are going in really positive directions. And so I was excited about it at first, but then last week we also were moving. We, my, I was getting my baby on a schedule. There was a lot happening. So I was just feeling how busy I was. And I immediately like flashed forward in my child's life. And I was like, wait, if I go at this rate that I've been going the last 
six days, so I shouldn't be too hard on myself because it hasn't been that long. I was like, I'm not going to be the one raising my baby. And I just had like this overwhelming amount of guilt. I had to like sit down and clutch something. And then I thought, oh, well, what do I do from here? And so because I, as you said, I do have the vocabulary, I am blessed enough to be able to interview so many amazing people. I thought, well, let me use one of these tools. And so I just got curious and it's like, what does this mean for me? What is in this for me? And instead I was able to lay out a new future plan. So I do expect the next couple months to be pretty busy. However, I also to have made a lot of changes just in today. There is no time to scroll on my phone. I put my baby down. I went and watched a Udemy video on something I'm trying to learn while folding laundry, came immediately back here. (laughs) It's just been step by step. And I'm like, this is what I need to do in order to have the life I want with my children, even during these busy times. And then I have a plan for January to make some other changes. So I'm not sure if that answered your question. It was kind of a long winded way of an insight into the way I've been using my emotions as guidance. Yeah, it absolutely did. You know, it's like we, we pulled on that little string and the whole attic comes down, you know, it's, that's, that's the power of this stuff is when you really ask these, uh, these feelings, these anxieties to tell you a little bit more, there's usually a ton there and it's all raw material for creativity. In this case, it's pretty clear that from what I'm hearing, we're on the, the, the direction, the axis of time here between what's in front of you and what's behind you. And so the way that that's negotiated in the book, in the seven directions in which way is north, is that in front of you, you have your hopes and your fears, that there are all of these potential futures that you're headed towards, or all of these areas that you're giving your attention to. And of course, you know, I heard in your reflection there that there's a lot about the future of your children that was a part of that. And, you know, there's there's a degree of, of fear there, right? Are they going to be safe? Or are they going to be okay? Can I set the best path forward for them? But interestingly, I also heard when you were talking about your business and your husband's business, there's a lot of hope there as well. And hope, surprisingly, can induce a lot of these anxious feelings because it's scary for things to go well because it means you're going to have to do stuff. You're going to have to prepare for them. And then also in your share, there was a little bit about your past in terms of some of the ways that you danced with these moments and these feelings and, and, and negotiated your inner experience in, in past lives. And in the seven directions behind you is joy and anger. There, there are things where sometimes where we have a lot of joy for the experiences that we had, and there's anger that we have for the experiences that we have. And in all of that sharing, it was it was really beautiful. I mean, I heard it, and, and I imagine some of the listeners will too. There is a thread from your past through your heart into your future that is telling a wonderful story. And that story could be a blog where you write about this experience. That story could be a song that you compose and play on guitar. That story could be a painting. That story could be a seed for a fictional character in a fictional universe. And it was really wonderful. Thank you for playing with that live with me. That's what I got out of it. Well, now I feel so much better about it all. (laughs) Well, one of the things that I have been, when it comes to creativity, what what I find is there's so many of us that are, are, under the impression that we're either not creative or we think of ourselves as creative people. It's like, oh, we're artsy or we're not. And something that's come up on previous podcasts around this idea or previous episodes around this idea has been that, you know, we're all creative. We just don't really see the different aspects of our lives that we're using creativity. It could be a stay-at-home mom that's using it in cooking. It could be a marketer that's finding different ways to pitch a product. It could be, I mean, there's so many ways that we use creativity, but we kind of put ourselves into these boxes. But I love the idea of seeing ourselves as creative, no matter what role that we're in. And you mentioned something about how nobody has an idea, they just find it. And so I would love for you to elaborate on that for, for people who think they don't have a good ideas. Yeah, I really, I, I feel this one. 
uh, I think one of the points of origin of this book was when I left the musical world and entered the business world and somebody said, I'm not creative. I can't come up with an idea. You're the creative one. You do it. And I was really shocked by that because it, it was naive, but it, it hadn't occurred to me because I was so nested in an artsy world uh, that there are people that might feel that way. And it's continued to be a debate that I, I do have with some people. Uh, I believe that everybody can be creative and that's not an opinion that everybody shares. So what I'm trying to accomplish with this book is to lower the barrier and raise the bar on creativity in terms of like recognizing that even the way your heart beats when you enter a room is a creative act and creating an entire symphony is also a creative act but the human station in the cosmos is to be a participant in creation we have hands that can shape the ground according to the ideas we keep in our heads and our hearts so let's use them and that notion of nobody having an idea and just finding it i do think that's a really important part of it because when you are looking for the idea that wants to express itself, now you're in collaboration with the universe and you're bringing into form what wants to be expressed by nature all around you. And always, always, I've found that that kind of creative process is what really works and what really ends up moving people and making meaningful change. I love the way you worded that, what wants to be expressed. I shifted my feeling on ideas a while back. And I kind of imagine them as sort of floating through the air. And it's like, okay, well, if, if it came to me, there's something about me where it's possible to bring this to fruition. But it also kind of puts a fire under my butt about doing and acting and, and bringing it to life, because otherwise, it's going to float by and, and go to the next viable human who might bring this forth. <laughs> but you also talk about this concept of expressing the truth in art and creativity. What do you mean by yeah. that? Yeah, so that's that came from the scene with the Zen master where the book kind of opens with it. And he really confronts me with this idea of, you know, there's no point to making art if it doesn't seek to express the truth. And that's a really interesting thing now that I'm going back and, and reading the book as, as a reader, now that it's been a few months since I really touched it. And when I got to that part, I was like, do I agree with that? <laughs> so like as a reader, as a consumer, I'm having this new experience. And I do. I do. But it also raised this interesting kind of expansion of thought in terms of like, how does this fit for, you know, fictional universes? How does this fit for fantasy? And it helped me to realize that some of the greatest works of fantasy, Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, Dune, right? Uh, Withering Heights, like these are pieces of fiction that express profound truths through them in a way that nonfiction can't. And so there is a purpose to art, a purpose to creativity, and it's inescapable, even if it's Dadaism and it's trying to just sow chaos and just deconstruct things, there's a truth in that too. And as a compass for anybody thinking about how to be creative, I think that really anchors the idea of the importance of looking to your anxiety because anxiety is a truth bringer. And that, to me, the combination of those two notions, that anxiety is creativity and that creativity ought to express the truth, I think that's enough to kickstart the engine in most people to start becoming artists. I do find it interesting how we do associate this anxiety with creativity. And I'm wondering if that's always been the case or if somehow we have been evolving to devalue creativity in a way, if that makes sense. And so now there's just, maybe the stakes are higher. I'm not quite sure. That's interesting. Um, let me proceed it from a few sides. Uh, one, like, I think like, look at the blues and kind of going back to my music education, there's this notion that like, you can't truly sing the blues until you've lived the blues, that there's something in your soul that has to happen before you can make that art. 
And, and that's this really provocative challenge for young students like, like I was. It's like, no, you got to go out and live if you want to do this. You got to get some scrapes. You got to get some bumps. You got to have something worth talking about that comes from experience. And I think the output of that is that when other people go through it and an artist, be they a songwriter, a painter, or a creator, went through something and they see the art that they made to express it, somebody else going through, they can be like, wow, I'm not alone. I'm not alone in that experience. So anchoring there, I do think that we have devalued creativity. I think that there is a lot of easy creativity that is out there in the world that doesn't come from experience, but maybe comes from an algorithm. It comes from what market research says people want to see. And as we're seeing with the rise of technology, less and less human hands are going on some of these works. I think we can feel the difference as consumers of media. I think that we know when there is a heart in there and the signature of that is, did somebody have an experience? Was there an anxiety here that somebody was looking to resolve? Was there an emotion at the core that created a question that this piece attempts to answer. And that's a heart thing more than a mind thing, I believe. I actually just got an email the other day. And to be honest, I wasn't sure how I got on this email list. Don't know who the person was, whatever. But I got this email. It was this long sort of written thing. Somebody was excited about relaunching a thing. Didn't even get to the end of the email <laughs> because I lost interest. But then the next day, I got another email from the same person. And I ended up reading the whole thing. And she was basically like, I need to be honest, I used chat GPT in yesterday's email, didn't do so well. So I'm trying again, and like wrote a much more heartfelt thing. And I was hooked. And I was, and I thought to myself, these tools that come out, and it's with everything, it's not just AI, it's with social media, it's with any technology that's been introduced. There are so many upsides and there are a lot of downsides we need to be aware of and it's either losing our attention or our humanness or our connection with each other and so i think so much of it is just understanding that and and for me i've had these conversations with a lot of different people it could be anyone from a client to my grandma and some people just don't have the awareness that, that it can lead you two downsides. So even just turning inward and asking, okay, here's a new thing. We haven't seen what the downsides can be yet, but how can I connect to myself? What What's in this for me? How can I use it to benefit? What do I need to be aware of? And it's interesting because I don't need to wait for the studies anymore for things. I can just sort of ask myself that and the truth will bubble up. Like I'll know, all right, well, here's what, what can go wrong with this. And even in that way has allowed me to use the tools that pop up for, to actually aid in my connection rather than, you know, taking that human creative aspect out. But so many people are worried about, you know, AI is going to take our jobs and yes, for some things, but for the things that really make us human, that really connect us, I don't think we have to worry about that if we're diligent. And now for another episode of Lies We've Been Told About Our Health. We've all heard we need eight glasses of water a day, right? Well, hydration isn't actually about water intake. It's about the balance of water and electrolytes so that our bodies are actually absorbing the water instead of just passing it through. A lot of people go for those sugary sports drinks, but let's be real, those do more harm than good. I've found a better solution. Element. It's a zero-sugar electrolyte drink that's all about effective hydration. Each pack gives you essential electrolytes like sodium and potassium without the unnecessary additives found in other drinks. The team behind Element includes experts in biochemistry and nutrition, so they really know what they're doing. And it's not just for everyday use either. Elite athletes and teams 
Olympic weightlifters, CrossFit champions, Navy SEALs all rely on it too, which to me says a lot about its effectiveness. Here's what makes them really unique. They recently launched a hot chocolate line with flavors like chocolate mint, chocolate chai, and chocolate raspberry. Ever since I went alcohol-free, I've been really intentional about luxurious, health-focused drinks so I can sit back and unwind while actually doing good for my body. And the Element Chocolate Chai is great for relaxing in the evening or warming up after winter sports. And you can try Element totally risk-free. If you don't like it, you'll get your money back, no questions asked. Receive a free Element sample pack with any order when you purchase through drinkelement.com slash mindlove. That's drinklmnt.com slash mindlove to get a free starter pack with any order. Americans spend an average of 90% of their time indoors and take about 20,000 breaths a day. And get this, the indoor air that we breathe is two to five times more polluted than outdoor air, and in some cases up to 100 times more polluted, according to the EPA. And did you know that air pollution is responsible for nearly 7 million premature deaths globally? So what's the solution? Two words, living intentionally. We have to take full responsibility for every area of our lives, including our health, which also includes our air. And that's why I love my air doctor. As a reminder, when you support my sponsors, you also support the show. Air Doctor filters out 99.99% of dangerous contaminants, so your lungs don't have to. This includes pollutants like allergens, pollen, pet dander, dust mites, spores, and even bacteria and viruses. I live in the mountains, and our air is pretty great. When I drive home, I can witness myself rising above the cloud of pollution that covers the rest of Southern California. But I know that even in the mountains, my home traps in the contaminants that my family brings inside. Plus, just sleeping one night with my air doctor, I could actually feel the difference. Air Doctor comes with a 30-day breathe-easy money-back guarantee, so if you don't love it, just send it back for a refund minus shipping. So head to Air Doctor Pro and use promo code MIND, and depending on the model, you'll get up to $300 off. You're saving up to $300. Lock this special offer by going to A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-P-R-O.com and use promo code MIND. That's promo code M-I-N-D. Yeah, we'll, we'll find ourselves in the negative space. You know, the, the further we define what is machine, the further we'll define what is human. And what I love about that story is that there, it's a two-parter. So, and there's a drama to it that this person sent this email and you sense that something was up and then the next email comes and they, like, they admit it. They admit that they were using this tool and it did something that kind of got out of hand and there's something deeply human in that error uh that they felt but like it it wasn't an error if, it, if it's art right there's no wrong notes but it's the drama that it creates and what is so relatable to that is we are all having the experience that that person having or that that person sending that email had just in our own different ways um, as uh, a friend of mine, uh, Dr. Marcus Collins, likes to say an exogenic, ex exogenous shock to a culture kind of creates these different responses from everybody. And we all had this incredible tool dropped on us at the same time. We've all been given Promethean fire, and now we're trying to figure out how to play with it without burning ourselves. And that's the big story right now. That's the big mythic story. And that story itself is a very human story prompted by the advent of a new technology. That reminds me about something that you talk about. You, you call it catching curiosities in culture. What does that mean and yeah. how does it feed into your creative process? Yeah. So you, you also, you mentioned, so, um, the curiosity from what you just shared is you talked about like, I don't need to wait for the research. I'm going to have an experience with it. So that phrase right there is something that I would call a curiosity. So taking a step back, a curiosity is something that I use as a noun, not just a state of mind. And it arises from what I learned through Zen practices of meditation of the phenomenology of experience, where if you have an emotion, let's say guilt, to, to reference our conversation earlier, you wouldn't say, I feel guilty. You would say, there is guilt. There is the noticing of it. And a curiosity is something that you notice that kind of sticks out. That is like a, 
a little bit of a different vibration, something that reveals something. And as a mystic, that's something that's really important for dream practice, for example. When you're lucid dreaming, you got to look for these things that are kind of sort of sticking out in your inner world and then go into them and they're portals to other places. It's an incredible part of that practice. For marketers, it's like trend forecasting. You scroll through the feeds or you're going out to public parks and basketball courts and looking for new arising memes or trends in fashion. There's always just a little bit of a glow to them. It's, it's something curious, something that captures your attention and then you you pull on it a little bit and it takes you somewhere so in what you shared this uh this idea of not having to wait for the research that really stuck out to me as a curiosity that i want to go into in particular because it does something in me because i feel that way too and in that i find something that is very distinct to the identity that i would call the mystic because the mystic doesn't have to wait for somebody else's explanation because they're ready to dive in with their own experience. And that is something that I think is very important to bring to the surface in our world right now, because we have so much confusion in so many different places because our explanations for things are breaking down and the world is moving so fast that the explanations can't necessarily keep up. And that little instinct there, which seems like it's the smallest thing of, I don't have to wait for the research to decide what I am going to do is really big and really, really powerful. And it's the perfect example of a curiosity. Yeah, I think that idea or that way of being first sort of started in my health journey. There's a lot that I feel like once the research comes out, it's too late. It's like, okay, it's, it's, this has hurt this many people. And, and what I have found in my lifetime is that the further I get away from nature, the further something is from nature, the more I just have to be, bring my awareness to it, I guess. And so for um, people in my family, there's just been a trend with pharmaceuticals. So I'm very distrustful of that industry. I also just began watching Dope Sick on Hulu and <laughs> my feelings are confirmed. But it goes with anything. So much of my life now, I mean, so much of my teens and 20s, it was like, oh, there's a pill for that. <laughs> I remember learning about something called the Barbie pill that apparently helped you lose weight and would tan you. Now I look at that. I'm like, what toxic pill was I considering taking? And now I'm like, can I go hug a tree today and walk barefoot in the dirt. <laughs> I feel so much better. And so uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of what I see as people waiting for the research, I'm like, you know, you could have kind of discerned this with common sense <laughs> before, but you also talk about the art of future telling. And something that stood out to me is, is you mentioned how there's a balance between what's true and what's useful. Tell us about that. Yeah, that was a really core theme to the book. In fact, it was the opening question in an earlier draft of it. It just asked, which is more important? What is true and what is useful? It was more about sitting with that question and providing an answer. And I do ask people that sometimes, and I'll, I'll be curious what, what your answer is to it. And it, it goes a couple of different ways. I think it's an observation on the state of culture today that it certainly does feel like more, more value is being put than what is true. So that's in defiance of facts, that's in defiance of, of research, but we, we certainly see that there's a lot of storytelling that prompts action that, you know, to, to put a story out there that is useful towards a particular end becomes more important to people. But then it's also a way of just kind of navigating your own life in terms of we can't know everything. And I think part of the modern dream that we grow up in is that maybe we could, that's kind of feels broken. And so it's paralyzing to wait until you can figure out everything that's true before you act ultimately to some degree you have to trust you have to trust yourself you have to trust nature you have to trust the people around you 
And then you're in the domain of, of what is useful. You know, if there's a hand reaching out to pull you up and you don't know who's on the other side of it, it's still a hand that's there to pull you up. So it's a different way to think about navigating the world. And I present it as a question more than as an answer, because sometimes I think it's important to bend one way versus the other, but it's always important to reflect on it. One of the first things that came to mind was the phrase that you often hear, do you want to be right or do you want to be happy? (laughs) And so, and on another note, the, on the mysticism side, I'm coming to believe that truth might vary depending on the dimension (laughs) that might sound kind of out there, but I have been really immersed lately in a combination of Ram Dass and A Course in Miracles. And so I've come to believe that, and you know, even science can back this up. It's the, what we see, what we experience with our senses is all the, the lower frequencies that are heavy enough to be witnessed by the five senses. And so what is true here might not be the truth that maybe a realized being or an enlightened guru in India might experience as true. And so uh, lately, it's funny because so much of my life has been almost obsessed with finding truth. I was raised in a religion that stopped feeling in alignment in my late teens. And and since then, it was like I, I needed to debunk that in any way that I could and prove something else. And it just kept leading me down these different paths of spirituality. And I read something in A Course in Miracles a couple months back talking about how sometimes the pursuit of knowledge is actually a way that we are attempting to prove our worth. And something about that really resonated with me. Yeah, yeah, I feel that deeply. I think that the the presentation of this question, which is a bit like a a koan, you know, sort of those kind of old Zen proverbs, like what is the sound of one hand clapping, um, you know, which is more important, what is true or what is useful. I put that in there to help relax this tension for people to maybe even relax it by breaking it logically, because there is no answer you can truly settle on. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of me, myself, uh, kind of going back to my past, there'd be a time where I'd be like, what are you talking about? Like, what is true, of course, matters more than what is useful. Like the truth is, you know, what we aspire towards. And then the next question was like, well, how is that working out for me? And it would create a lot of stress. It creates a lot of dogma. It creates a lot of pressure because there is a futility to being able to find the truth in everything. And that is, again, the goal of the question to then, after you explore that direction, look at the other side. And to get with you on the very mystical side of, I think it's fair to say that when you're looking towards your future, the story that you tell yourself can change the outcome. And recognizing the story that's coming is part of looking into the future. And oftentimes it's the story that is more real than the facts that are going to create it, that are going to write it. And so as we walk through time, we end up creating the facts as we enter a different story. And so nothing is true yet until it actually happens. In the book, it says, you know, the the, the, the facts of the future aren't written, but the story that's coming is is due. And then in the past, you know, the, the facts of the past are written, but the stories we tell them can change. So as you move through time, you do have this ability to change what the truth becomes by telling a story that's useful towards certain outcomes. And that's a very provocative thing to reflect on, I think. I use this concept in trauma healing, actually. Uh, when I was younger, I was sexually assaulted and I and I would have flashbacks of that quite often. And what I noticed though, is that the story of what happened changed. When it first happened, I was almost in denial about it for years. And then something shifted my perspective and made me realize that I was the victim in that. I think I held a lot of 
guilt for a while. And once I was the victim, then I spent years really feeling like the victim. And so there was so many sides of this coin because on one hand, I was like, well, this is the truth of it. I need to see this, but I don't actually feel any better right now. Not saying I felt better just sort of shoving it under the rug either, but it was like two different feelings of pain. And when I started on a healing journey, I decided to play with the idea of just completely rewriting the story. And so I used it as a journaling activity and I wrote what I wish I would have done, how I wish I would have advocated for myself in that moment, how I wish I would have walked away. And I felt this immense wave of healing. Like I was just letting go of this story that was, I was telling myself over and over again. And years later, almost a decade later, I have chills talking about it. I ended up interviewing this woman on, on changing your, basically healing your past by rewriting your childhood memories and just writing it in a new way. And so much of well, really all of the past is just a story that we tell ourselves. And what's interesting is, is now it's evolved in a, in a totally different way. And so I can see this one story evolving in different times in my life, maybe based on what I'm ready for, maybe what I can handle at the time. I'm not sure, but it's evolved in a way that now I've become the hero of my story rather than the victim of it. And so I know that's kind of a a dark area to reflect on that, but we don't always realize how much of our pain is wrapped up in the story that we're telling ourselves and how much power that we have. And it's like the story that I landed on, the way I told it to myself just to journal it wasn't necessarily true at all. It might be true if it happened now, but it provided an outlet, if that makes sense, for this maybe cycle of energy that was just sort of stuck in my body. Thank you for sharing that. That's incredible. And I think that that's really, really helpful for a lot of people to hear stories like that. You know, going back to our past, the reason, again, that I I pair these two together of what is true and what is useful is because you know, the facts of the past are immovable. What truly happened is an immovable object, but the stories that we tell ourselves about those facts, they, they can change. They really can. And to step into the mind of this enlightenment master that you described, when a moment is happening, they're probably closer to experiencing all of the different vantage points, all of the different perspectives of how to interpret those facts. In the book itself, or this is very much the what is behind you chapter, I kind of uncovered a, a whole layer of meaning to the Perseus Medusa story and use it as an allegory to talk about exactly this, because Medusa's in this cave and she's this monster that is so terrifying that if you are to look directly at her, you'll turn to stone. You'll be paralyzed with fear. But Perseus is able to go into the cave with a shield that is polished like a mirror. And he's walking backwards and he's looking at Medusa from a different angle, from another vantage point, not directly. And in doing so, is able to defeat Medusa and out of which comes the Pegasus and becomes this power, become the hero. And in that myth, I see an incredible suggestion for exactly what you just described in terms of how to go back to our past traumas and not look at them directly because it'll paralyze us. They're they're too horrifying. But when you're able to approach them from another angle, approach those facts, approach that truth from a useful direction, then you can vanquish it and you can come out creating a power out of the very wounds that you were keeping in that cave in the first place. And how incredible that that is written in myth. And it's there in all the facts of that story. But also, I just kind of constellated them together into a useful interpretation of the truth of that story. So there's a lot of different ways to work with attention usefulness. I often talk about, I call it my Rolodex of mindsets, because I just had this 
understanding years and years ago when I was trying to grow, trying to fix my life, that the way I look at something will clearly greatly determine how I'm able to cope with it. One story I just heard was, um, again, we're going back to Ram Dass because I've listened to like 100 hours of him in the last couple of months. <laughs> but he, he was talking about how somebody asked him, you know, you it was a couple that lost a child in, in a very horrific way. And, and he said, you know, what you've gone through is unbearable. And there's something about that, realizing something is unbearable. We have all of these coping mechanisms. Sometimes we look at them in a negative way where we, we will sort of like, okay, well now I've disconnected from my body or whatever it is, but it might be that it's our survival mechanisms of, of pushing us to a different perspective. And he told these people, you know, now you are changed. You're no, you've got to see something not from the person who just experienced the unbearable from the witness of that. And I, and I love that where as so often we, we do look at ourselves as like victims of our life, where as instead we can shift to the observer of that. And it's something that I play with a lot, but on a lighter note, because we've been talking about trauma and this is more about creativity. You also introduced this concept of, of thinking like a consumer versus a creator. And this is another way where we can sort of just shift our mindset of from one perspective to another. But can you share some practical tips on how to shift from a consumer mindset to a creator mindset? Yeah, sure. And I would also offer that I think that that certainly is connected to what we were just talking about, because if you're stuck in a consumer mindset, then you don't believe that you have the agency to be the author of your own life. However, if you have a creative mindset, then you do. And that gives you the skill set to look backwards and to rewrite the stories of, of how you got here and where you're going. So one of the practical tips I would give for making the shift to being a creator versus a consumer is, is simply to, to be able to take inventory of what kind of influences are, are being put into you from the media. So one of the things that I do is I, I don't keep my phone in my bedroom. I, I make sure that I have a little bit of time to myself at the beginning and the end of the day so that what I'm seeing through the screen isn't bookending my dreams, because if it is, whose dreams are they, right? Mm. <laughs> uh, I have a whole morning routine that when I'm dialed in, when I'm really doing it out, I'm not going to pretend that I do it every day. But when I'm dialed in, I, I take about a good hour and I have some meditation, I do some exercise, I do some journaling, and I have a relationship with myself that is fortifying me from the tides of the day, whatever it is that comes in. And then in doing that on the other side, I'm able to recognize the difference between what is me and what has been put into me. What came in from, you know, what what's anxieties came in from the show that I watched or some email that I got or something that was in the news. And that gives me a choice to release it and just be like, okay, thank you. I'm, I'm done with this feeling. You can go away now. Or to take it as inspiration and figure out how do I want to respond to that? Not like very pragmatically thinking about people that are on social media and are trying to figure out how to get into the conversation. That is a better space to be in dialogue with culture from than being caught up in the tides. When you're able to take a little bit of a step back, you can see what's really important and what comes from a deeper place of inspiration and co-create the conversation around whatever is happening in culture from, you know, your, your individuality within that. And then, you know, another practical tip, I just, this is a little bit more grounded in, in the marketing side of things. It's what I see with a lot of the Reddit communities, but fandom is expressing itself now in co-creation more than ever. And the way that people express their affection for the shows that they're consuming is they make art. They, they There's so much fan art that we see online and they do that to strengthen their skills in whatever medium it is that they're working on, but they also do it to just share to just share in the moments that they're all going through together so the very asking of the question of of how can i be a co-creator of culture rather than a co-consumer of culture 
I think just asking that question every time you're participating in culture is enough to get started. Ooh, I love that insight just into the process. I'm reminded of when I, I remember there was a time in my life where I realized I had sort of lost my creative streak. And so I was determined to get it back. And I remember just looking at Pinterest. And at the time I was deciding to use my creative streak on furniture <laughs> because I I had just moved. I didn't have a lot of money at the time. And, and I was like, okay, well, I'm going to get all my furniture from Craigslist or thrift stores and then like revamp it in a way. And so I bought some things and then I was looking at it and I was like, I have no idea what to do with this. It looks like trash. <laughs> and so I was looking up Pinterest and I thought, how do people even come up with this? And I ended up yeah. using the idea of stealing like an artist, just copying things at first. I copied yeah. like three projects and before I knew it, it's like it activated something in my brain and I was thinking of, of things and I ended up creating an ottoman out of a jewelry arm wire and I was just like, this is it. This is what I've been, I just needed to copy a few things like, like get on the path and gain momentum. And then before I knew it, I was creating on my own. And so I really appreciate just sort of the insight into how to use some of these, these ideas. And another thing you mentioned in your book is a cycle involving the head, the gateway and the heart. How does this cycle contribute to the process of creative vision? To a dimension of that experience, as a as a songwriter, I often found trying to learn somebody else's song, I couldn't play it, but I would land on something else that would become a completely original song. So, trying and failing to live up to what inspires you is also a great way. So, you touch upon this line as well between brilliance and madness, and I want to talk about this before we wrap up because. First of all, some of the most brilliant people I knew were also batshit crazy. <laughs> it's like, depending on which context I was meeting them in, I was like, you are like, I just want to be like you. And then I'd, I'd see them in a different setting. And I'm like, oh my, you're, you're kind of nuts. Like, <laughs> and I'm like, does it take being nuts to be brilliant and successful? Like, why, why are so many of the successful men I know, like that Steve Jobs, like you hear from employees that they made their lives miserable, but they're also like, followed by so many people. So how do you navigate this line and what would you give to other people? Well, first, I don't think that being brilliant should be synonymous with being an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> True. Madness doesn't necessarily mean you have to be mean. Yeah. Doesn't necessarily mean making other people mad, I suppose. <laughs> um, but I, I, I think that's something worth changing. Let's see if we can deconstruct that identity and that myth. And, and you know, like just the, the glorification of, Oh, this person is being so bold and you know bulldozing people because they have a vision not for me i don't really like that so the way that i look at this axis of brilliance and madness is that the madness is the lightning bolt it's the inspiration it's where you just have this like almost almost like gnostic experience of just reality un unrestrained when you kind of are your version of that enlightened master we've been talking about now, what you have to do is you have to ground it. You have to bring it to earth. You know, lightning doesn't strike until it hits ground, right? And in doing so, it's about taking your crazy and meeting people where they're at so they can receive it. That's absolutely what this book is. I, I can't believe I was able, they let me put some of these ideas in here uh, because it's like the full scope of my crazy, but it's... I did the best that I could to translate it, honestly, through the skills that I learned in marketing, which is interesting, into language that I believe people can receive. And so in order to reach for what I believe is the best creativity I'm capable of, I've got to go into the, the madness. That's where, it, that's where it lives. And then the question is, can I bring it back? That remains to be seen. Well, we'll be following along so we can see how it lands. Well, I super appreciated this book just because I am often like I go on long walks with audiobooks and, and things like that. And I'm usually like either in the business side or the spiritual side. And so I'll go really deep with spiritual and I'm like, okay, I need to bring it back to the logical and grow my business. And then I'm in that brain and then I go back to the other side. And so emerging of the two 
makes me feel sane. <laughs> it kind of makes me feel whole in a way. So I love leaving listeners with something to ground this information into the reality, like a practice or something to focus on this week. What would you leave them with? I am going to give them something that I'm, I'm going to wrap up a rogue compliment for you. Um, because you mentioned how you love audiobooks. I can't wait to record the audiobook because I haven't done it yet. But the compliment that I want to give you is I'm such a fan of your opening monologues in each of these different episodes. And the way that you synthesize the conversation that's about to happen for the listener, first off, I think is just excellent. But more poignantly, there's a musicality to your voice. And I think that that's something that... that anybody that speaks into microphones can appreciate. And so first off, I just wanted to extend that compliment. But second off, for the listener, I want to provoke them to think about the musicality in their voice. When they're talking, how are they changing the meanings of words with their inflection and rhythm of them? Because speaking very much is a song. And, and if they're not sure what I'm talking about them, I'd say just listen, listen to your monologues. Uh, and, and see the way that you present those ideas. That's a nice grounded practice, I think, that can open a lot up for people. Well, I didn't know I'd blush at the end of your homework for us. <laughs> well, th thank you so much for everything that you've brought to this conversation, to the world through your book. Highly recommend it for those spiritual people out there who also consider themselves makers or marketers. Like I said, it really resonated with me. So for listeners who are interested in learning more about you and finding your book, where's the best place for them to connect? My website is will-katie.com. And these days, uh, I'm mostly on LinkedIn and Instagram. You can just search my name and Reddit, where my online username is itswack, I-T-S-W-A-C. All the links for this episode will be at mindlove.com slash 317. Your challenge for this week is to consider the musicality in your voice. Remember what Will Cady said. He said that when you're talking, sometimes the way we use our inflection and our rhythm of words actually changes their meanings. Take some time this week to just bring awareness to the musicality of other people's voices and then bring it to yourself. How is it that you're speaking to people? When does that change? Does your tone change on a phone call versus an in-person conversation? When you're speaking to your child versus speaking to your mother-in-law? Just notice. This awareness is what allows you to become more intentional when you're speaking. You don't need to know what to do with it right now. That's probably a whole course in itself. But paying attention to these little nuances in life, in our life experience, whether it's what we see, what we hear, what we say, that's how we bring intention. Once we start to notice, we can start to create. So let me know how it goes. Reach out to me on Instagram at mindlovemelissa. If you want to bring intention to more areas of your life, check out the Mind Love Membership. Every month we have a new masterclass designed to help you design your life. That's at mindlove.com membership. You also get access to over a hundred exclusive episodes just for MindLove members, as well as meditations and other bonuses. So again, that's at mindlove.com membership. You can also find all of my amazing sponsors at mindlove.com sponsors. And there's some pretty great discount codes in there. So check it out. And that's all for today. So thanks for giving your mind a little love today and I'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning into your higher frequency with Mind Love. Head to mindlove.com for a free gift to keep your vibes up until next week.